Welcome to a special bonus edition of The Farcast. This week, Michael welcomes Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former president of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank. Their discussion went over time, but we learned so much talking with Jeff that we wanted to share the complete segment. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Has the Fed done all it should do, in your opinion? Uh, yes, and, and then some, yeah. Yes, and then some. I want to go back to something else you said. I understand that you're, 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 you have a premise that we didn't have to uh, actually use uh, send all the money out that we sent out in the spring because it went into savings and it wasn't used to basically sustain folks. But you said uh, also that the $4 trillion in deficit spending that we've added to the debt this year uh, and, and basically borrowed that money from the future uh, was not the right approach. How would you come up with funding at a time when you did you if you believe that there is a need for stimulus? I, I think the need was for relief rather than stimulus. I think the what's driving the level of economic activity is the lockdowns, the the health, public health. Um, uh, constraints that governors and, and state and local officials are enacting. That's what's driving. That's what's throttling the level of economic activity. And, um, you know, everything else is just sort of providing after the fact insurance for people who are more burdened by that reduction in activity and those who are less burdened by that reduction in activity. You know, I will ask, I, I asked and had a discussion with a president of a Federal Reserve Bank, and I'm not going to mention his, his name right now, uh, but um, uh, I, we were in a very, very public setting, and I said, um, this was when we were early in this coronavirus thing. We didn't have the uh, real onset in the U.S., but we had the supply chain disruptions, and we had supply chain disruptions out of the Wuhan province, province and Ford and GM could not get parts to complete cars and they were shutting down their manufacturing operations. I saw Tim Cook in Washington and chatted with him and he said he was having trouble with parts and trying to resource parts for phones and other things that I, uh, Apple builds. And I asked this, this Fed president, I said, if this, I see risk of a, of a recession. And I said that in February 12th on CNBC and I was torn apart for that based on the supply chain risk. But I said, look, you you, you can't shut down production at GM and Ford. I mean, we're, they were already talking about a four-tenths of a percent hit to the GDP based on the Boeing shutdown. This was clearly a massive global thing. And we were having, a, uh, we had our major trading partners in peril. So I said, what will the Federal Reserve do if we if this supply chain problem gets worse? He said, nothing. He said, why should the what good will it do for the Federal Reserve to lower late rates to try and fix a supply chain problem coming out of China, <laughs> which which is entirely logical and rational. And and I don't think that's why they ended up lowering rates. I think they had this, oh, my God, moment as we saw, uh, you know, the stock markets fall 30 percent and we saw an economy shut down. And what do we do now? Did was he wrong? And 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 would you have been convinced to do what the Fed did in March? Um, I would have lowered interest rates in March. I think it it made sense. But I I think he was right in the sense that one shouldn't expect monetary policy to be able to offset the effects of a supply shock. 
And what happened in March is uh, a was a supply shock. The same logic that applied to disrupting supply chains and those disruptions limiting activity in a way that the Fed can't perfectly offset or it, or very much at all offset applies to what happened in March when people just stopped going out because of fear of the COVID virus. Uh, it sounds like a uh, Chairman Lacker Federal Reserve would uh, would be very circumspect uh, in future, uh, I guess, ongoing QE or any increase in uh, the purchases of debts from these levels. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, there's there's a certain humility that sometimes the Fed, um, sometimes the Fed exhibits, sometimes not. I mean, that 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 putting in the sentence about how the path of the economy is going to be depending significantly on the COVID virus is sort of a signal that, hey, we can't bring the economy back by ourselves. Whereas in March, Chairman Powell and others were talking about making everybody whole. And that that just wasn't in the cards. That just wasn't something the Fed was capable of doing. So I, I, they've, they've come a ways in the last few months. I think they've realized how limited their effect is on on the level of economic activity and 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 they're just trying to ameliorate some of the pain financially and relieve ease credit constraints on some uh, sectors um, but I think they realize they can't push an unemployment rate down significantly without uh, without some some developments on the COVID front read out of Jay Bryson Mm -hmm. He's basically saying that, um, you know, the Fed could get easily to seven point four trillion by the end of the year uh, if they have to really uh, open the floodgates again. That number could go to 11 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet. But don't worry, none of that actually matters. It's kind of a balance sheet item. It's not there going to cause any inflation. It doesn't affect anything for the long term. And um, uh, it's uh, it's no big deal. Uh, and and not gonna not not gonna be inflationary, and it's really not a problem. Except that now that the Fed is buying, um, now that the Fed is wait a minute, because I I, I I just have to check this because I'm I'm gonna screw it up if I do it from memory because yeah, I don't have. I'll one. push back on that story. Uh, he says uh, uh, right now at seven trillion, uh, and the Fed buying. Uh, non-government assets, buying mortgages and some corporates and other loans. At $7 trillion, the capital bases remain constant at about $39 billion, which means the leverage ratio is 175 to 1. This means that the Fed could technically be insolvent at some point if some of those assets go south. How, <laughs> does, the Fed, how does the Fed go insolvent? And if they're going to go insolvent at 175 to 1, what do they look like at 11 trillion dollars uh, yeah. on that balance sheet. Yeah, so I I could illuminate that. There's some there's like some accounting there's an accounting trick that a, a lot of people don't know about. I mean, it's surprising how many popular accounts you read about this just ignore just aren't aware of this, but there's an accounting trick that would prevent them from being book value negative net worth. And um, the way it works is that you know, they have a certain amount of capital and they take earnings and they, they replenish capital and keep the capital where it's supposed to be. If they ever get have run out of earnings to do that or have negative earnings, there's a an asset account 
that they credit themselves for in just the right amount to to keep their capital up. And it's it's called prepaid interest on Federal Reserve notes because the remittance to the Treasury is called interest on Federal Reserve notes. So they essentially give themselves credit for future payments to the Treasury. It's exactly like a deferred tax asset. Exactly like that. They just give themselves a deferred thing. Oh, yeah, in the future, we're going to pay the Treasury back. And then when they when they make money, they pay that account off first before they pay the Treasury. So they're never going to go insolvent. They're always going to show book value capital exactly where they are now. Now, market value, they could be negative, easy. And their financial statements every quarter reveal capital, unrealized capital gains and losses. And with a modest rise in interest rates of maybe, I don't know, a while back it was like 100 basis points or so. But if if interest rates go up, you know, their portfolio goes, you know, loses value and they could have unrecorded, unrealized capital losses that are way bigger than their capital very easily. So that's that's the the, the trick. They could they could be insolvent economically speaking in a way that, you know, kind of would take some people to like dig into their financial statements to figure out. But technically, you know, their balance sheet, because they mark everything to market and they use this trick would show that they have just as much capital as they always did. We're running into the some limitations then of what actually the Federal Reserve can actually affect. It seems that they can save us some pain, but they can't really generate activity from their activities. I have a I have a theory. You're going to love this. I'm I I um, uh, disagree with Milton Friedman. Uh, okay, you can't see this because we are uh, uh, on a video call, and what? Uh, and his his what? jaw just hit the desk. Look, with all of my years of formal economic training, which went at least into economics 102, uh, I uh, Friedman, who said that inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomenon. I am going to, I am just taking issue with that and suggesting that unless that monetary stimulus can generate demand, if it can't generate some velocity of money, that the money that's created in and of itself hasn't been, hasn't been going anywhere enough to really generate any inflation. Yeah, that's a good point. So the you know, if, if if you look at the size of um, he just he just lifted his jaw up off of the desk, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he yeah. he doesn't think he doesn't think I'm a complete fool yet. But I, I I'm looking at Lacker, and I can tell he doesn't think I'm exactly right either. No, I think you're right. So I, because of interest on reserves, we're in this strange world where it's sort of for monetary conditions doesn't matter how big the bank the Fed's balance sheet is within a certain range. Banks hold uh, right. tr- banks hold trillions of dollars of liquid reserves. A fraction of that is the reserves that the Fed forces them ha- to hold by buying assets in the market and 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 putting reserves into the system. If the Fed put enough reserves in the system, it would swamp banks' holdings of res- yes. of re- of liquid assets, and it would force them to respond and it would force adjustments in banks balance sheets that would generate the the type of increase in um, money at the retail level um, that used to occur in the 70s when the Fed injected reserves. 
So we're we're in this this time zone where the it's it, it's easy to be lulled into a false sense of security about yes um, causing inflation. Yes, but we could easily flip if we could easily expand the balance sheet too much and hit a a threshold where above that expanding the Fed's balance sheet does drive inflation, and and that could be a, a you know a disruptive um, adjustment process. I think the most important thing you said there was that I was right. Uh, <laughs> that was with the with the caveat. With, with the caveat that, yes, they could if they wanted to. I mean, there's a certain point where if you throw enough gasoline on the fire, it will it will go. Um, uh, so, Jeff, as one of the leading economists and economic thinkers in this country, let's help folks as they think about how they're going to vote in the fall. Let's look at the economics of Donald Trump's four years, and let's look at the economic policy and proposals as best we can sort of cipher them as proposed by uh, Vice President Biden. Um, as you look at Trump's four years and we take in a corporate tax cut and a, then there was sort of a uh, spending bill out there as well. There's been a whole lot of regulation that has been done away with. There has been the taking on of a trade war with China uh, and economic sanctions as the go-to tool for President Trump throughout his administration. How has all of that affected the economy in your view? Has the president done a reasonable job on the economy? Um, so I think you're right to highlight the, the trade um, situation and the trade war. Um, I, th I think on, on trade policy, I'd give this administration very low marks. I think it's been um, bad for the US economy. Um, I think the, the tax cuts that big bill at the end of 2017 was a, a mixed bag, uh, some good points, some bad points. Um, and I, I, I think going forward, um, it would have been nice to have paid for that uh, rather than had it just lumped onto the national debt. Here we were with, you know, an all time historically strong economy and the U.S. deficit was at record levels. And now we need that fiscal capacity to, to do what we need to do to alleviate um, the uh, shocks that that have that have hit a lot of American households, and we find ourselves just adding phenomenal amounts to the debt, and uh, that's going to limit us at some point. So, um, it, on on the on the the scorecard uh, for uh, paying for what you do, I'd, I'd give them low marks. Um, and we'll just have to see how that unwinds going forward. You know, you said uh, that the trade uh, policies and the trade war with China have not been good for the economy, uh, have not stimulated the economy. I think there's no argument about that. But I think the president early on said something that did make sense to me, which was that uh, this was going to be tough sort of on, on our economy, it was going to be tougher on the Chinese, and our economy was so strong that it was time to take on this trade war, that it was time to try and corral China and get them to behave as better economic and business corporate citizens around the world. That kind of made sense to me that, that the Chinese have been getting away with murder for a long time. Now was the time to go against it. Yes, it would hurt us, but it would hurt us less than it was going to hurt them. Did that make sense? I mean, I kind of felt at the time it did, but now in the, in the yeah. light of everything else, no, it didn't. No, I mean, it's 
there's always been concerns about Chinese commercial practices and government policy towards uh, commerce to yes. towards Western companies operating in China. The traditional, I think it's a matter of not whether you're taking that on or not, but what, how you're taking it on. And the traditional way we've taken on China has been in a multilateral way, building alliances with other trading par important trading partners like those in Europe and elsewhere, and um, putting unite a sort of a broad front of pressure on them. This administration decided instead to go it alone and abandon the the TPP, the the Trans-Pacific uh, Partners Trade Partnership, um, and abandoned a number of multilateral um, mechanisms and didn't seem to be any more effective going it alone against China. You know, you yeah, you, you impose pain on the U.S. when you tax imports into the U.S., exports from China. But the idea, the theory of the case was to try and get China to change its behavior. And it doesn't seem like we've made that much progress on that front at all. Uh, it does seem like they have felt some pain, but uh, it doesn't seem sufficient to have changed their behavior yet. We'll see. And yes, you know, this government has had, uh, the Trump administration has had a history of coming away from these multilateral agreements. Uh, in the case of Iran, uh, we're, we're going along one-on-one -on -one, uh, uh, with Iran. And it seems that that's the president's preferred course um, to go for direct dialogues, not even bilateral. I mean, it's uh, multilateral is out. Um, we can't get too many people involved here. It has to be more of a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and I guess, I guess results have been, have been mixed. From what you've seen of uh, the Biden platform economically, are you more encouraged or discouraged, or are we at a point that is still going to be um, still going to be driven by what you see um, uh, basically from the coronavirus? Uh, so an incoming administration is going to have their hands full uh, in this situation uh, with such a huge load placed on the U.S. debt um, outstanding. Um, so it's it's going to be a, a, a tricky challenge. Um, so I've picked up a passing acquaintanceship with uh, some of the proposals coming out of the, the Biden camp. I'm a little wary about some of them. Some of them seem more ambitious than we heard from the Democrats four years ago. Um, but ambitious, ambitious how? Well, in, in terms of sort of scale and scope, um, but we'll see. The one for, thing for social programs, for what kind of spending scale and scope are you talking about? What cl climate um, and other areas? So one thing that really disturbed me was an announcement. I believe it was last week, um, a proposal that the um, Federal Reserve's mandate, official mandate from Congress, be altered um, to include social and, and, and racial justice objective of ameliorating inequality um, and uh, um, other uh, disparities in um, wealth and economic outcomes. I think those are laudable goals for society, but I think assigning the Federal Reserve a role in those is to really fundamentally un misunderstand the capability of a central bank. What's, why, what's the problem with that? Well, I, there isn't much the 
a, a central bank can do about the distribution of income. You know, sure, their monetary policy um, has uh, side effects on uh, wealth um, and to some extent the distribution of wealth. Uh, but it, it, as long as the central bank is keeping inflation uh, low and stable, there isn't much else they can, you know, if they're going to maintain that price stability, uh, there isn't much they can do that's going to affect uh, the, the distribution of income or wealth in a meaningful way. What does it take for us to get back to $22 trillion in GDP? Um, time and getting this COVID virus behind us, I think. Uh, and and uh, so for the next couple of years, the economy will likely have a positive slope or do we see another recessionary dip? Uh, so right now there's a risk in the next couple of months of another dip uh, that's, I think, a significant risk. Um, I think the most likely thing is moving sideways for here, from here for a while. So an economy that's kind of stalled out within unemployment between, you know, 10 and 15 percent. Uh, but there is a chance of a dip if people coming back to school, colleges getting back together, a lot of things that happen in the fall uh, generate um, just, a, a, you know, an acceleration of the spread of the virus. It's pretty clear that there's areas of the country that haven't been, um, you know, exposed to the virus and where there's the potential for more, um, more distress and more infections. So in, until we get to the point where we've 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 got it behind us and we can manage new outbreaks, I think there's a, a potential for for the return of lockdowns, for the necessity of return of lockdowns that induce another dip this fall. Uh, OK, so it will be a covid driven risk that you see uh, that that could occur in the fall as mm -hmm. we try to get back to uh, school and other things in the fall that could cause uh, and that shutdown would cause a deeper recession. How does the Fed, I, I, I know I'm over my time, uh, what does the Fed do then? You're the Fed expert. What does the Fed do on another dip and another recession? How much more corporate paper than what, do they, do they buy stocks? Do we take rates negative? The dial that they, the only dial they have to twist right now is who they're lending to and on what terms. They have, uh, Programs where they can go down the go down the credit ladder and and broaden their reach, they could do that. I'm not sure it would do much at all, though. I mean, it would just uh, send credit out the door, but I'm not sure it would aid spending or um, eliminate the need for lockdowns that occur. So they can try um, and push, but it this is going to be like pushing on a string for them to try and um, unwind or or offset the effects of. A, a downturn induced by uh, public health measures. What are, what are, what's the percentage odds that we could see negative rates in the U.S.? I think that's pretty far away. I think um, the countries that have done it have never gone more than maybe you know seventy five basis points negative at the most. I think that it would be it's viewed as. Uh, damaging to um, banks and money market mutual funds. Uh, I'm not sure how damaging it would be, um, but I, I think in the present configuration of institutional arrangements, we're not going to see negative rates in the U.S. 
20% chance, 30% chance? 15. All right. Dr. Jeffrey Lacker is the Distinguished Professor of Economics at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Business, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of <laughs> Richmond, Virginia, one of the smartest and nicest guys I know. Thank you so much for being on the Farcast. Uh, we get the best to... letters and notes and emails and texts, Jeff. When you're on, uh, it just lights up. So we thank you so much, and I always learn so much. Thank you, and stay safe and well in Richmond. Thank you, and you and Lori, too. Take care. All right. Take care, Jeff. Bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another Farcast this week, August the 4th, 2020. Uh, we will be back again, of course, uh, across the summer, trying to give you more insights and help for Wall Street, Washington, and the world. From Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, for the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Have a good week. Thank you for listening in this week on our special bonus edition of The Farcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll share with a friend. Special thanks to Michael's guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. We're beginning planning for season four of The Farcast and we'd love to hear from you in any topics you'd like us to cover. Join us again next week on The Farcast as we go beyond the headlines. The Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world.